0: So, from that, that gorgeous, from all the beautiful singing this morning, we're going to talk about facing the darkness now. And so, I'm just going to tell you, this is a sermon that's going to make some of you really uncomfortable uh, because we're going to talk about Satan. So, some of you are already squirming. Oh, God, what is, well, this, is, going be, what is this going to be? What does this mean? So, so I, I guess part of what I want to tell you is it's, it's going to make you uncomfortable. Um, the first time I was invited a number of years ago to be part of an exorcism, I will tell you that was one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life. It was so far outside of my experience and my comfort zone. and uh, And so uh, you know if if you if you find some of this challenges you do this morning, welcome to the club. Um, but the other end of that is that that when we uh, when we attempt to deny the reality of evil that's in our world, we we pretty much leave ourselves wide open for it. Um, and, I, and I used to have to argue with people that, that evil actually—you know—it actually there was actually evil in the world. And I would have people in my church go, "Oh, we don't like talking about all that stuff, and we don't want to do a prayer of confession. That just makes us feel bad." <laughs> Maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe though, you're missing the point of prayer of confession, which is to pray and then receive forgiveness. So it actually should be something that makes you feel better, uh, rather than, than worse. Um, But once we hit uh, 9-11, a lot of things changed in our world right then. And we gathered, a bunch of us gathered that night here and worshiped. A number of you were here. I recognize many of your faces and we came together. I don't think anybody walked into that room the night of 9-11 to worship saying, oh, I don't think there's any evil in the world. I think that all changed and we recognized the reality of it. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to face the darkness this morning. Let's pray. Father, send your Holy Spirit to be in the midst of it and send your light to be in the midst of this darkness. Uh, Shine in us and through us and open our minds and our hearts and our spirits that we might hear what it is you want to say to us this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to take you uh, back to uh, the very beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry in Luke's Gospel. He goes back to his uh, the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and on the Sabbath day, went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, "The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners." and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." Now the crowd's initial response to that, uh, some of them were impressed with him, some of them were upset with him. Uh, But the interesting thing is after, you know, you kind of go through that initial little phase there, he goes out from there and he does exactly what he says. He goes out and proclaims the year of God's favor. He goes out and brings freedom to the prisoners, uh, setting the oppressed loose from the things that hold them in bondage, uh, preaching good news to the poor. He, He goes out and does that. And over a period of time, the disciples gathered. They watch what he's doing, and they see what he's doing. And then he gives them a charge in the beginning of the ninth chapter. He calls the twelve together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So having watched what he did, he now gives them power and authority and sends them out to do the same ministry that he's been doing. And as best as I can tell, there's nowhere in Scripture that says, but only for a day or two, or only for a week. That charge that goes to his disciples still goes to his disciples. There's people that argue about that. Uh, There's a theory called cessationism, uh, and basically, it says that the you know the gifts of the spirit were really were, were kind of limited to those initial uh, disciples and apostles of the church. It was only only for a period of time uh, that that gift was poured out upon them. And I have a problem with that because if you actually read the letters of Peter and Paul and James and John, you realize that they're continuing to give instructions about the spiritual gifts. Their understanding is that's going to continue to roll out through the church. They're, they're, they're not intending for that, don't understand that that's going to come to an end at any point in time, uh, but rather that it, it, it is extended on out in the church. So the charge that, that is given to them is the same charge is given to us. Uh, Jesus gives us power and authority to drive out all demons, cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And, and if you find your way to the end of Matthew's gospel, to what we sometimes call the Great Commission... You hear him in this resurrection scene, again, saying to his disciples, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That language about the end of the age doesn't mean... um, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, a generation from now. It, it means to the end of the age when, when the kingdom is finally fully perfected and completed in the midst of the world. And, and through that time, Jesus says, this is your mission, and I'm going to be with you always, always throughout that time. The ongoing mission of the church then is what he begins with, you know, that initial charge, Right? Casting out demons, curing diseases, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. That's, that's the mission that's given. And, and, and to the best of my knowledge, nowhere in Scripture is that rescinded or brought to an end. Now, some of this stuff we're pretty comfortable with and some of it we're not. You know, and, and we struggle and wrestle with some of this. And, and I'm hoping kind of to, to play with this a little bit this morning as we talk about it. Um, and I'm going to remind you, as, as Jesus talks and, and as the Scriptures are written... They're going, to talk, they're going to use the words uh, uh, demons. Uh, they're going to talk about devils. They're going to talk about impure spirits or evil spirits and all those languages in there. But, but we have so much baggage around that. I'm just going to invite you to use whatever language works well for you that doesn't carry a lot of baggage. Because we carry a lot of freight with all this language. Uh, and sometimes that works against us. So remembering that this is part of our call. Hear this story. Next day, the next day when they came down from the mountain after the transfiguration, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he's my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. And Jesus responds, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. When you read through the scriptures and the stories of Jesus' life and the apostles, what you're going to hear is, These things kind of weave together, these stories where he comes and he preaches the good news. He proclaims the kingdom. And people receive healing and evil spirits are cast out. And all that kind of weaves together. And it's interesting to us that we kind of shy away from parts of that. I mean, we know what it is to talk about physical health. And we know what it is to talk about mental health. Although it took us a while to get to that. But but then we talk about spiritual health. And a lot of times people don't even have a clue. And don't know what to do with that. Don't even recognize that there's a reality there. But in Jesus' ministry, all that's woven together. He recognizes that sometimes physical healing and mental healing and spiritual healing, is all tied together because we're, we're really all cut of one piece. And when we forget that, oftentimes we create an impediment to our own healing or the healing of those around us. Because an important part of who we are Remains diseased. He makes this response. He says, You unbelieving and perverse generation. And and I know most of us think of that as a a group of people. And and actually, if you kind of look up the, the definition of this, here, here's the you know the first generation. It you know it's a group of individuals born and living contemporaneously, a body of living beings constituting a single step in the line of descent from an ancestor, a type or class of object usually developed from an earlier type. So you, know, you might talk about the first generation of a certain product, or we talk about a generation of a group of people, and you know we've all talked you have all the stuff about millennials and generation Z and all that stuff you've heard all about. So we have those kind of things. But here's the other part. The other part is the action or process of producing, the process of coming or bringing into being, production. So, you know, y'all remember the snowpocalypse, right? Yeah, remember? Yeah, don't laugh. That's what we're calling it now. I mean, you know, some people call it snowmageddon. I like that one too. But, you know, and, and some of us, we lost power at our homes. Anybody lose power at your home? Yeah, like most of us did at one point or another. Because Why? What was what, Why did we lose power? We weren't generating enough electricity, were we? Our generation of electricity was insufficient to meet the need. Now the interesting thing is when Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, the word that is used there in Greek can mean either one of these meanings. He can be talking about a group of people, but he'll also be talking about our unwillingness to tap into the power that God gives us and our trying to solve problems that actually we need to give over to God. As uh, my friend Carolyn says, we are using a horizontal solution to a vertical problem. We're trying to solve something, we're trying to fix something that actually only God has the power to fix. And so we are notoriously ineffective at doing that. So I want you to hear that this is, this is real in Scripture, and this is a real call that comes to us. And sometimes we need to separate our um, biases and our current culture out from the reality of what's being taught in Scripture. Uh, one, you know, as soon as I talk about demons or Satan or whatever, some of you are going right here, right? Now, this is the thing I want to tell you. You know, if this is what you encountered walking out of your house one night, you'd know what to do, wouldn't you? I mean, would you be—I mean, really? Is this just not obvious as all get out— Uh, And and frankly, this is not the way most of us, uh, or even I would say almost all of us, are going to encounter the reality of evil in the world. This is the kind of stuff that comes out of movies, this kind of fantastical kind of imagery that we are put out. And and so, you know, no wonder people think we're talking about this, they're going to dismiss it. But you can also uh, kind of uh, go to the other direction, where people will say, well, really, it's more like temptation, Now, stop licking your lips and drooling. I mean, I like chocolate cake as much as you do, and I enjoy it just as much as you do. But here's the thing. If I'm walking by a piece of chocolate cake and I'm thinking, no, I shouldn't have that right now, I'm sorry. That's not temptation. That's just me knowing that I shouldn't be eating that right. I mean, it's just or or lack of willpower or whatever. Not everything is about temptation and evil. Sometimes it's just about indulging ourselves or having a lack of willpower. On the other hand, if you're a severe diabetic and you keep eating stuff like that, even though you know it is slowly killing you, maybe there's something going on there, right? Maybe there's something going on there. I and mean, there needs to be some discernment about this, about understanding w- what it is we're up against. And I know a lot of us are really uncomfortable with that and a little uncomfortable getting into it but Jesus says you know I'm with you always so you know if you're not really sure ask the man right I mean he says I'm with you always I'm here and stop trying to to make it into something fantastic and all this or or, or trivializing it I love what my uh uh, uh colleague Mike Pilavici said you know, one night we we're at new room and we're having this amazing uh, uh, worship service. And, uh, and he made the comment in the middle of it, it was a service of healing. In the middle of it, he made this comment. He says, don't make it weird. And I thought, well, too late for me. But, you know, uh, but that's what happens when we start talking about the whole concept of dealing with evil and, and the reality of evil in the world is we, we tend to either want to make it real or somehow to trivialize it and act like it's not there instead of just saying, yeah, it's there, and, and we deal with it. Just like, you know, physical illness is there, and we deal with it. Just like people being hungry is there, and we're trying to deal with it. I mean, this this is just part of the way the world is. And so instead of making it weird, what if we accepted the reality of it and began to try to deal with it? So back to this, this story, this man brings his son. And, and you know, you just uh, have to, oh, well, yeah, Paul reminds us here in Ephesians. He, uh, he reminds us that, you know, this is, this is part of our thing. This is the beginning of the putting on the armor of God uh, uh, section of Ephesians 6 where he reminds us, you know, be strong in the Lord, his mighty power, right? His power, not ours. Use, don't use horizontal pro- uh, power for a vertical problem. You know, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Just recognizing the reality that evil is there, it is without and within and that, that's part of the battle we face now we're going to go back to, to Luke so you have this initial story comes down uh, from the Mount of Transfiguration this man has brought his son to the disciples and, and every time I read this you, know, you think about this father this is his only child and he's, he's watching this you know, it's like a train wreck you know, it's just slowly destroying his son and he, he doesn't know what to do about it or how to stop it he takes it to the disciples they're unable to drive it out And Jesus has that response, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Now I want you to read that last sentence and notice how he puts that together. He rebukes the impure spirit and heals the boy. It's all part of this act of healing for this boy. And then he's able to give him back to his father whole. Can you imagine what that would have been like for that father? They were amazed at the greatness of God. They were amazed. So I want to pull some pieces out of all this and just kind of remind you. I mean, evil and evil spirits exist. I mean, we, we walked through 9-11, we saw that, we, we've seen it. You, you probably have experience with people in your life whom um, you've witnessed this in, where it seems like there's just something destructive at work in their life. And, and, and you've watched them and you've wondered how in the world you, you, you can stop that, and you don't seem to be able to do anything, and you're just watching them slowly destroy themselves. That's the route of evil without and an evil evil within. The enemy can tempt and even control us. The enemy can tempt and even control us. Um, this idea of, of temptation, you know, if you go back in the Old Testament, sometimes the name for the devil is the tester or the adversary. You know, he's the one that, that is testing us and. And, and working on us. And and I know we don't like to think about that and I don't I know some of us are really uncomfortable with this thing about control us, but I want to tell you that, that from the viewpoint of of the recovery community and those who have battled with addiction, that idea of being controlled is really real. It's really real. And they'll talk about the gift of desperation in the recovery community. It's that point where you you get to where you you realize that your life is no longer under your control. Because when an addiction is powerful in your life, it takes over. And your longing, your desire for that drink or that drug or the next piece of pornography or that money or that work or that power or that prestige or whatever your addiction is becomes so powerful that you will do anything to get it. You will destroy your marriage. You'll destroy your relationships with your children. You'll destroy your relationships with the rest of your family. You'll destroy your work. You'll tear your whole life down because whatever it is that you are addicted to sits on the throne of your life. And it demands complete allegiance. I sometimes remind families about this when they're trying to understand why would our kids do this or why would our friends do this? And I'm saying because because their addiction is in control. It has taken over their life. They are possessed by it. And the gift of desperation is to reach that point where you realize that where you know that you are tearing your life apart and destroying everything around you, and you know that you can't stop it because whatever you're addicted to is in charge. And the reason that becomes a gift is because once you understand that and can admit that, then you can be open to accepting the power of God and the community to help you. But as long as you continue to deny it, your addiction continues to control you. Evil, contempt, and yeah, and the enemy can control us. Not all the time in the kind of way you think of in movies, but in a lot of the ways that a lot of us live. At this point in my life, having lived as long as I have, I'll look around the world, and I'm pretty convinced about 75% of the people that I've encountered in my life have been addicted in one way or another. Some more socially acceptable than others, but none, nonetheless real. And really, the only one who deserves complete allegiance in your life is the one who has given himself up for us. And he is also the only one that has power to overcome that addiction. Jesus didn't play games with the evil spirits. When you go through Scripture, you don't see him playing games. You don't see him being cutesy or whatever. He just deals with it as if it's anything else in the world. He takes it on. He rebukes it. He rejects it. There's no there's no dealing, there's no conversation that goes on, there's no extended arguments or whatever. I mean, Jesus just takes it seriously and handles it. And sometimes we need to take it seriously and handle it in the same way. The enemy is lazy. Remember, he's the tester of the adversary. He's gonna look for your weak points. Enemy doesn't come at you where you're strongest. Temptation always comes at you where you're weakest in those places. And really, in some ways, in the Old Testament, that's kind of like, almost like his job description, you know? His job description is to find your weak points. And that is, you know, if you find your weak points, then you know where you, what you need to do or what you need to offer up to God and become stronger in that. But, but nonetheless, you know, the enemy is going to come at you at your weakest point. If you're moving through a neighborhood thinking that you are going to rob a house in the neighborhood, you don't pick out the house with the good locks, the alarms, and the big dog, Right? You go to the house where the people put the key under the front mat and leave the door unlocked all the time because it's the easiest one to get into. The enemy is lazy and comes at us in our weakest points. The enemy's first language is lies and discouragement. Have you ever noticed in, in some of those stories where Jesus is casting out evil spirits or impure spirits? And they they kind of want to argue with him and have a conversation with him about him, and he shuts them up and casts them out because he doesn't want to listen to it. And he doesn't want to give them a chance to spread lies and discouragement. All those voices that, that maybe say to you things like, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, God doesn't love you. I'm always amazed I have people say things like, I can't take communion because I'm not good enough. Or I'm with one of the saints in their last hours, and they're going, do you think God will really let me into heaven? I mean, God says, listen, God God so loved you. God so loved you and the rest of the world. But God so loved you that he sent his only son to die for you. That's how much God loves you. And when when those voices in your head are saying, no, you're not okay, no, you're not worthy, no, you're not good enough, that's the enemy speaking to you. There's a reason Jesus doesn't let the impure spirits talk. And I kind of wonder if there's an application for Facebook here, but I'm not sure about it, right? Sometimes some of us put things on Facebook, we need to kind of go, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that, right? I mean, but nonetheless, this is, this is what we recognize. When, when we hear those voices saying to us, you know, you are not okay, you are not good enough, you're not worthy, no one cares about you, nobody loves you. That's not the voice to listen to. And you need to call on God to rebuke that voice and throw it out of your head. And we know, we know how the story ends, right? We know how the story ends. And, and the enemy doesn't win. Remember? In the, in the end, the resurrection overpowers the powers of death and darkness. And I love, at the end of the, uh, one of the stories in Luke's Gospel... Where Jesus has been accused of being, you know, casting out a demon because he's a demon and all that. And he goes, kind of pulls that apart. That's that whole house divided against itself, cannot stand speech. At the end of that, he makes this comment. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And and it's interesting to me to think about that imagery he uses. Just, just, Just the finger of God, just the finger of God is more powerful than the evil we face. Just the finger of God is more powerful than the evil we face. In the end, the enemy doesn't win because in the end, God wins. In the end, God wins. So I want you to think about the the different kind of responses. I mean, in, in Luke's gospel, when they haven't been able to cast out this demon from this little boy, Jesus' response to him is, you know, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Now, now there's another story in Luke's gospel where the disciples have been out on a mission and they come back and they're telling him all the amazing things that they've seen. A little later in this, in the uh, 10th chapter, and he turns to them and he says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. That's the joy of stepping into the calling that God gives us, to be part of bringing the good news to the world to be part of facing the darkness and the power of God and overcoming it, the darkness without and within. So here's a couple questions for you. Are you willing to name the evil spirits that are tempting or harassing you or those you love? You know, fear, anxiety, lust, anger, lying. I love one of the things Carolyn Moore does with this. She says, our spiritual houses really are kind of like houses with one car garage. You know, if Jesus is parked in your garage, you know, nobody else can park in there. So Satan can't get in. But that doesn't mean we're not going to walk around the outside of the house and try to harass you from outside. Uh, So you're safe, but you can be harassed. So are you willing to name the evil spirits that are tempting or harassing you or those you love? Fear, anxiety, lust, anger, lying. And when you see those manifest themselves, are you willing to speak the name of Jesus and ask him to remove anything that isn't fit for the kingdom of God? Now, you're probably just really uncomfortable when I'm asking you that and suggesting you might try that. And I'm going to remind you about this whole bit about discernment. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age, he says. So, you know, if you're not sure, ask the man. But I'm also going to tell you that, that this is something that is so foreign to our culture that we live in right now that you're probably going to make a mistake in there somewhere you probably are and again my friend mike pilavachi has a wonderful little piece of advice for us if you're wrong nobody dies it's okay you're gonna make a mistake it's not the end of the world right and sometimes we just need to give ourselves permission you know Let's just trust, let's move ahead, let's call it like it is, let's ask God to guide us in that, and, and, and recognize that, you know, we're not always going to get it right. You're just not, because, you know, we're disciples, we're not Jesus, so we're just not always going to get it right. But that's okay. That's okay. Because if you're wrong, nobody dies. It's all right. And, and, and the reason we do this is that in all these times and all these places, we do it because we know that in the end, God wins, right? I mean, this is what allows us to face the darkness, is in the end we know God wins. This is what allows us to name it. This is what allows us to face it because we know that in the end God wins. This is this is why we can speak to someone who is battling with addiction. We can come alongside of them and we can be there with them in the end of that because we know that in the end, God wins. This is what allows us to face those voices in our head head that say to us, you're not good enough and you're not worthy enough and God doesn't care about you. This is what allows us to face that down and say, no, you've said that you love me enough that your son came to die for me because in the end, God wins. This is what allows us to pick up the paper in the morning and read all the weirdness in the world and not be overwhelmed by that because we know that in the end, God wins. God wins. Jesus faced the darkness. He calls us to face the darkness. And our courage and our confidence doesn't come from us. Our courage and our confidence comes from the one who holds the final victory. And in all times and in all places, that's the knowledge that holds us up and allows us to face the darkness. The knowledge that in the end God wins let's pray Almighty God we come to you and we confess that it is much easier for us to try to dismiss the reality of evil either by making it some kind of fantastic I- imagery or imagination or, or trivializing it and instead of dealing with it honesty, honestly both, both the evil around us and the the evil that is within us. So we ask that you you give us eyes and, and hearts and spirits open to be guided by you. That we might recognize the disease that is within us and among us. And that we might be open to the power of your spirit to cast that out from us and restore us to the wholeness you desire from us desire for us. Give us courage. Give us confidence to face the darkness within us and around us and to do so in the knowledge that in the end you win the battle. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.